Welcome back to Pod Save the World. I'm Ben Rhodes, and the show is going to be a little different this week. Tommy is out on vacation and also celebrating a landmark birthday. So I will be hosting along with the Washington Post Global Opinions Editor, Karen Atia, who you've heard on the pod and is really one of the truly inspiring and interesting voices in journalism today. So we've got a really great show. Uh, but before we dig in, there's just one piece of housekeeping I want to do. Yesterday was National Poll Worker Recruitment Day. And guess what? Even if your family does not mark that holiday, you can still sign up to be a poll worker. When polling places don't have enough poll workers, they close, which leaves many voters unheard. And this is not the election to do that. So in an election year where voting has already become more complicated by this pandemic and this president, we cannot risk losing the votes we need. Vote Save America is working to recruit 10,000 poll workers. So if you are healthy and able, sign up to be trained and work as a poll worker at your polling location. It's literally the most important thing I think you can do this election day to make sure that votes are counted. Find more info on votesaveamerica.com slash everylastvote. One more note this week, there's a new Missing America that's dropped, episode four, Disinformation. You will hear the unbelievable or perhaps all too believable story about how Facebook came to Myanmar and brought with it the spread of hate and disinformation and helped contribute to ethnic cleansing. But you'll also hear what we can do about that. You'll hear from a lot of different voices with a lot of different ideas about how to regulate big tech and make sure that disinformation is a virus that we can treat instead of a virus that spreads unchecked around the world. So check out Missing America. Okay, I'm very happy to be joined by the editor of the Washington Post Global Opinion section, uh, truly one of the essential resources uh, to make sense of today's world, uh, Karen Atia. Thank you so much, Karen, for, for riding with us today, being a co-host. Oh, thanks so much, Ben. This will be this will be a lot of fun, I think. This, yeah, I mean, as much fun as these topics can be. So we've got a, a great show here. We're going to start hearing a little bit from Karen about uh, her book that's coming out, and then we'll briefly drive by the Republican National Convention of last week. But that will lead us into a discussion of Jared Kushner's uh, magical mystery trip to the Middle East this week. Uh, some discussion of Egypt and human rights. The latest from Belarus, uh, the latest from Beirut as well. Then some anti-mask protests in Berlin that also led to far-right protesters storming the Reichstag, not something you ever want to see in Germany. A strange story out of Rwanda. Uh, then we'll talk a little bit about Black Panther and the legacy of Chadwick Boseman. And Karen, to end it, uh, there's some good news about a panda that we can talk about. So with that, <laughs> I'm ready to go here. So let's start, Karen. I think you have some news. Uh, recently, it was announced you have a book coming out. Um, I, I wanted to just give you a chance to share with our listeners uh, what the book is, why you decided to write it, and uh, unfortunately, I think it's also going to tee up some of the topics we'll we'll talk about today. Yeah, thanks so much. Um, so uh, you know, as some or or many may know, uh, I uh, during my my time, you know, at the Washington Post and, and editing Global Opinions. I was the one who um, hired and recruited uh, Saudi journalist Jamal Khashoggi. Um, actually, I think next week or so will be like the three-year anniversary of when I first got in contact with uh, Jamal. Um, and then, as you know, so many know, uh, a year later he uh, was killed in a Saudi consulate in Istanbul. And so, for me, I. I, you know, many people may know or saw me, you know, really trying to do all I could, honestly, to advocate um, for him and not just for him, but for 
all of us journalists, anybody who uh, wants to speak their mind without fear of, of being killed or, or, or jailed or, or threatened in any way. And so um, I decided to write, just really honestly, like write my sort of remembering, remembrance, my memory of that, that year working with Jamal, um, who he was, um, that I remembered, and a bit of the behind the headlines, behind the scenes of what it was like, honestly, like the human story, what it's like just to be plunged into an international uh, scandal and the largest um, U.S.-Saudi, you know, tension or diplomatic rift um, since 9-11. And so that's what the book's about. I'm still finishing it. It's hard to know kind of where the, the story ends. But yeah, we're looking at um, releasing in March of next year, uh, inshallah, God willing. So yeah, yeah. And, and it's, um, it was hard. It's, it's still, he uh, was one of the writers that I felt very strongly about. He was, um, anybody who knew him, he was kind, he was honest, he was respectful. And still to this day, it's been almost two years and I still can't wrap my head around what happened. And, and our government's response, the Trump administration's response, it still sickens me. So, um, so yeah, I just hope that, you know, everyone can have a chance to just kind of see a bit of a different perspective on the story. Well, we're going to get into both our government's response and, and, uh, you know, some other stories, frankly, about journalists who are under threat. I mean, one one question I did just want to ask you, I'm always amazed when you meet people like this um, at the risks that they're taking um, and, and how they, they live with them. Uh, I mean, did you, how much did you have a sense from, from Jamal at the time, you know, that he was aware of the cloud over him, uh, you know, may not have envisioned that that could lead to something as extreme as what happened in the consulate. But uh but as an as an editor in a relationship with someone who's challenging, you know, an authoritarian system like that, um, how how present was that that sense of risk in in Jamal's life and work? Yeah, I mean, I think it was present, and yet there was a sense that even from me, um, my own belief as well, there was a sense that well, he was outside of the country, he was safe, he was writing for. The Washington Post, and I think for both of us, there was a sense that those two things offered him a measure of protection. Um, I still, you know, and, and looking back, and I'll speak about it in, in the book a lot more. But um, I look back, and maybe there are times where I think I should have known better. <laughs> um, given what has happened sometimes to some of the other writers that I've worked with and, and other authoritarian regimes. Um, again, I think the difference is uh, or was for them was that they were still in their countries. Um, but Jamal was outside and he was respected. All many powerful people in Washington knew him. And the chilling part about that is that it didn't keep him safe and it didn't keep me safe in yeah. some ways. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of, I mean, like all of us, none of us, you know, really know when our time is up, right? And we just yeah. carry on, we do, we live our lives, we always think there'll be more time. Um, and so I think that story also is is part of that, or what I hope to achieve. We were just going about our lives, we had no idea what was awaiting yeah. us, so awaiting him. So, yeah. 
Well, look, everybody should uh, check out Karen's book, uh, you know, be available for pre-order. Yes, um, it's called uh, Say Your Word, Then Leave. And it's, uh, well, you'll see why I named it um, to pick up the book, but it's it has a special attribution to, to Jamal and, and how he saw the world. So, so that's the title. Um, and yes, coming soon. And um, I'll be happy to speak a whole lot more about the experience then. Well, uh, you know, I, I, people should check it out for many reasons, including, you know, the fact that it's really at the nexus of so many things that are happening in the world today. Um, it was kind of chilling putting together the topic list today and, you know, figuring out how many of the topics we're going to discuss have some nexus to what happened to Jamal. Um, and, you know, starting, uh, unfortunately, with the RNC last week, uh, which, you know, I think it, it's easy for people to see the kind of authoritarianism on display here as some extension of the absurdity of American politics. But, you know, when you see essentially a cult of personality uh, an authoritarian pageant really at the White House, ignoring any laws or norms against the mixing of uh, politics and government in our country, um, you know, take that seriously. Um, it was also kind of a strange performance last week. We won't relive it in detail because who wants to relive it in detail? Um, but you saw this kind of simultaneous cult of personality about Trump and these conspiracy theories that we've come to expect from Trump's Republican Party. And a lot of speakers who, you know, insisted that Trump is doing things that he's not doing. Um, and so we heard, you know, simultaneously a lot of race baiting uh, combined with efforts to elevate, you know, black and brown surrogates, uh, even when they didn't necessarily know they were supposed to be talking to the RNC. Uh, people forced to uh, participate in a naturalization ceremony at the White House, people taped in public housing uh, in New York City who had no idea that the video was going to be for the RNC. Um, but when you can't really make an argument, uh, these are the things you have to do. Um, and on national security, Karen, I was struck that we heard about a Trump presidency that doesn't really exist. If you listen to the RNC speakers, you'd think we have peace in the Middle East. And with North Korea, you'd think Iran had given up its nuclear program instead of accelerating it. Uh, you'd think that Trump has ended endless wars instead of escalating them. Uh, one of my favorites, uh, Rick Rennell, saying that Trump has charmed uh, Chancellor Angela Merkel. Uh, which <laughs> flies in the face of everything that we've seen and prompted Angela Merkel to laugh when she was asked about it. Um, so that's you know pretty much the rundown, uh, an effort to kind of simultaneously say that everything Trump has done is great and often to say that Trump has done things that he hasn't at all done. Um, but I wanted to focus uh, on the, the values piece of this. And, and Tom Cotton was one speaker who said that we need a president who stands up for America, not one who takes a knee, not particularly subtle there. He accused Joe Biden of coddling dictators um, in America's backyard and around the world, um, which is obviously ironic. Uh, brings us to our first topic here, uh, Jared Kushner's tour uh, visiting many dictators. Um, so, uh, you know, the, the essentially uh, Jared will be doing exactly what they accused uh, Joe Biden of doing uh, throughout the week. Um, he's in Abu Dhabi, uh, the uh, capital of the UAE. Um, meeting with Crown Prince Mohammed bin Zayed, who's the de facto leader of the United Arab Emirates, obviously touting this normalization deal between Israel and the UAE. Um, other stops uh, could include Saudi Arabia, where he'll no doubt meet with Mohammed bin Salman. We can talk about that. And Bahrain, Oman, and Morocco have been floated. Uh, other countries that they've suggested they want to normalize ties with Israel. Um the plane carrying this delegation uh, from Tel Aviv to Abu Dhabi had the word peace written on it in English, Hebrew, and Arabic. 
Uh, again, uh, bears repeating that while normalization is great uh, in terms of Israel and the UAE, these are not countries that have fought a war ever or in any state of war. Um, the Palestinians reacted, uh, as you might expect, saying uh, the prime minister uh, of Palestine saying that this was a very painful uh, moment and a blatant violation of the Arab position towards the Arab-Israeli conflict, which had tied normalization to the Arab peace uh, initiative, uh, which envisioned uh, two states, uh, not just uh, the Palestinians essentially accepting surrender terms. Um, but, you know, what Jared clearly wants is more nations to uh, normalize relations with Israel uh, right before the election. And, and there's rumors that he wants a kind of splashy signing ceremony at the White House. Uh, we talked about this a little bit Um what are other nations getting? Uh, Bibi Netanyahu is getting a win um, in terms of normalization by doing nothing other than promising not to annex further Palestinian territory in the West Bank for now. Uh, the UAE, um, I think, you know, has been under a growing cloud in Washington, which we can talk about because of their real leadership with Saudi Arabia of the war in Yemen, which has created a humanitarian catastrophe and a strategic disaster. Um, also, Mohammed bin Zayed, um, and we can talk about this, you know, he was the first major supporter in Washington for Mohammed bin Salman when MBS was a relatively unknown, not even 30-year-old uh, prince. Uh, MBZ was a man who vouched for him, used all of his connections in Washington to say, this is a reformer, this is a guy we should trust and invest in. Um, so for MBZ, he gets to do a favor for Trump, uh, who he I'm sure once reelected. And if Biden is uh, elected, you know, NBC probably thinks he gets himself out of the penalty box here with Democrats by doing something with Israel. And he was also reportedly promised advanced U.S. Uh, fighter aircraft. Um, again, uh, pretty a strange gesture for the U.S. to provide advanced aircraft to a country that has killed civilians uh, with real uh, impunity in, in Yemen. And MBS will get, uh, no doubt, a photo op with Jared uh, just a couple months before election. So, so Karen, there's a lot there. Um, but I mean, what is, you know, having worked with Jamal, who talked about Saudi Arabia, which is obviously at the center of how these Gulf countries, including the UAE, approach the U.S. and the world. I'm sure having looked at, at, at NBC and this deal between the UAE and Israel, what do you think is going on here with Jared's trip and, and, and what jumps out to you? So much here. Um all I can say is I'm glad we have panda content awaiting us at the end, <laughs> yeah, yeah. At the end of this this journey of, of pageantry. I really like that you you brought up the word even just just pageantry when it comes to the Trump administration, what we saw at the RNC. And to me, it's almost this like ironically fitting time. If people remember, um, for a long time, um, at the beginning of the Trump administration, there was a lot of talk speculation, you know, what foreign country is Trump, who's notoriously, you know, travel averse, honestly, like what country is he going to visit first? It was Saudi Arabia. That was the first foreign trip. Um, and we remembered that it was stacked with pageantry that he, the Saudis spent millions upon millions. We remember the sword dance, the orb, the glowing orb. And, you know, to fast forward to, to now, you know, three years later, we know that, you know, Jared Kushner's, his whole, uh, you know, his, his piece de resistance has been this deal of the century, which is the normalization of, of ties between Arab countries and, and Israel. And, you know, as you said, um, only UAE has signaled, well, or symbolically symboled, uh, signaled um, these normalizations. You know, I think when I when I see this and 
um, thinking about even just Saudi Arabia, uh, Jamal, um, and even just MB, MBZ, um, Mohammed bin Zayed, who, as you rightly said, is the one many people say has been pulling the strings behind MBS. And um, in many ways, uh, I think the UAE, I mean, outside of outside of kind of Washington circles, uh, journalist circles, for the most part, UAE, Dubai, Abu Dhabi still enjoys a decent reputation um, in the wider, I guess, imagination. You know, you still have people who uh, talk about vacationing in, in Dubai and and it's do, uh, the Emirates has put a lot of effort into its public image. Um, you know, and I know just in my line of work, um, you know, we, we write, you know, we're critical of Saudi Arabia. That's no secret. We're quite critical of the human rights situation. Obviously, you know, furious, still furious, still critical of, of what happened with Jamal Khashoggi. Um, but, you know, the, the Emiratis are, are very sensitive to their to their public image and have spent on all sorts of money and all sorts of uh, capital to preserve this image of a tolerant, open, uh, progressive um, society. And so, you know, but underneath that has been a lot of repression and a lot of, I think, one way to also think about what's happening with um, with the UAE and this push to try to normalize relations with particularly these Gulf countries. So Saudi Arabia, UAE is using Iran, right, as or, or positioning Iran as the common enemy, as the natural reason why there should be uh, alliances between the UAE, Saudi Arabia, and Israel because, well, you know, Iran is is the common threat, right? And so you've been seeing a lot of this rhetoric throughout the Trump administration, even in their horrific and like shambolic response to Jamal Khashoggi's murder, was like, yeah, that was bad, but we have to fight Iran, so you know. Um, so it's just a continuation of that. And look, we know like Jared Kushner and um, MBS, you know, in, in terms of you know having a photo op, we know that they're buddies. We know that they're WhatsApp buddies, you know, and we know that he, you know, according to New York Times, that Jared was advising his, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> sleepover buddy um, to uh, weather the storm after Jamal's uh, Jamal's murder. And so it's just like straight up, like impunity, straight up, just, you know, if, if we do see that photo, you know, it's just another reminder that they do not care about human rights, about the backlash, about any of that. So, you know, it's, uh, uh, almost, yeah. Two years to the day after after the secret trip to to Saudi Arabia, and it's kind of like deja vu all over again. Trying to microwave this deal of the century in a couple months, um, and it's all pageantry, Ben. It's all pageantry. Yeah, you know, one of the things I mean that that always struck me about the UAE is that that MBZ loved to counsel people in Washington, you know, as if he he could explain the Arab world to them. You know, uh, let me tell you. Uh, almost kind of a, in the Lawrence of Arabia type thing, um, how to manage this region, how to think about this region. And, and almost always his advice was that you should not trust the people of the region, <laughs> that, they're, that the people of the region are too dangerous, uh, that they're not ready for democracy. You know, and, and let's face it, Abu Dhabi and Dubai 
are great cities, but they are not free cities, uh, particularly for the people of the Emirates. Uh, and there have been increasing, you know, efforts to restrict free free speech, even for foreigners, detentions of foreign academics, harassment of, of human rights activists. But I was always struck by this idea of a leader telling uh, foreigners, in this case, Americans, you know, don't trust my people, <laughs> you know, just me and you know, MBS over here in Saudi Arabia. And in a weird way, you know, that's kind of what Trump and Jared do. I mean, there's a common thread to this authoritarianism. It's amazing to me that, as you say, Jared, you know, clearly wanted to help his buddy MBS get out of the bind he was in with Jamal Khashoggi. Not only did he not at all care about what happened to Jamal Khashoggi, he just saw it as kind of this inconvenience that had to be gotten through, even though I think most Americans, um, you know, w- w- would obviously side with the Washington Post journalist, the U.S. resident uh, who was murdered in this way. Um, it, 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 it just says something, you know, about how little accountability Trump and Jared feel that they're not even worried about having a photo op with MBS two weeks before the election, you know, that, that they think that, that, you know, having a, a, a big gaudy, um, you know, show around, you know, what is not even a complete deal to normalize relations between the UAE and Israel, you know, overwhelms the concerns about the fact that this guy's like a, a murderous dictator. I mean, it, it, you know, it's a real test of whether Americans care about these types of things, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's just, and honestly, it should be, it should be a campaign issue. If I were on the Biden team, you know, free yeah. piece of advice, like if that happens, that should be a part of, uh, Trump should have to answer for that. Um, Kushner should have to answer to that. You know, again, memo to journalists, they should have to face questions on that. Um, And again, like you said, considering their RNC rhetoric about not coddling to dictators, this literally, if anything, MBS is um, being behind the murder of Jamal Khashoggi introduced MBS um, as a murderous dictator to many Americans, again, outside of sort of the Washington, uh, the Washington matrix. that was his introduction as a brutal, impulsive, somebody who's just not to be trusted um, with the future of, of the Middle East because specifically he does not care about the lives of lives, period. Yeah. Whether it's yeah. Yemen, whether it's it's journalists, even this year, very prominent uh, Saudi activist um, who have been jailed, have perished in jail, Abdullah Hamid, um, Ali Shahi. Um, Lujain Hathoul, the uh, woman who was famous for for trying to defy the ban on women driving, still sits in jail, celebrated her 30th birthday in jail um, in July. And so to me, you know, but to me, I also it's some it's a bigger question, you know, than just Trump. And and as you said, you know, this this question about uh, dictators um, and folks like MBZ who can come to Washington and sell uh governments and officials for years not just yeah. you know not just now yeah. but for years saying like oh you know don't worry about my people they're backwards like just yeah. trust me i can fix everything so what does that also say that we ate that up i, I didn't eat that up but i'm just yeah. saying like yeah. Yeah. others have eaten that up and created this climate now that lives arab lives can just be discarded so i mean i think that is something that i, I really wrestled with i struggled with um in yeah. the wake of jamal's jamal's death uh so you know but yeah like i like i said it's just a um and also a question of like 
what would the Biden campaign or what would a president, a Biden presidency look like in relation to these countries? Um, yeah. You know, you, Biden has said, you know, I, you know, I don't coddle dictators like Trump. Um, and obviously, you know, the U.S. has a sketchy history when it comes to that. But I think that's that should be a moment for the Biden campaign, not just to attack Trump, but like, OK, articulate your vision. Yeah. How would you deal with how would you deal with them? Yeah, no, I totally agree. And look, you know, I mean, we I, I think in the Obama administration, um, we had tensions with these guys over Iran chiefly and over uh, President Obama's initial decision to break from from Hosni Mubarak in Egypt. But time and again, you know, there was this kind of gravitational pull towards giving, you know, largely a pass to a guy like MBZ or not overtly breaking from MBS, even when he went to war in Yemen. Uh, I think that mindset that, that you know, was present in the Obama administration, even when we didn't get along particularly well with these guys, is what has to change. And, and, and the thing to look for is whether not only the rhetoric changes, but whether the policies change, whether we keep selling them advanced arms, whether we keep supporting a war in Yemen, whether we're vocal about human rights abuses. Uh, and actually, one test of that is, is is another country in the region I wanted to talk to you about, which is Egypt. Um, you know, I think a lot of Americans you know, don't fully know the story of, of the extent to which the 2013 really military coup, which the Obama administration did not call a coup and should have called a coup, um, that, that re- removed Mohamed Morsi, the democratically elected uh, Islamist uh, president of the country, uh, and replaced him with Abdel Fattah al-Sisi, uh, a, a really uh, a general who's become really a, a brutal dictator. That coup was financed, supported, advocated for openly by the UAE and Saudi Arabia. Um, and in Washington, they were very aggressive. And I remember reading, you know, uh, all manner of opinion pieces and think tank reports about how this was the will of the people in Egypt. And 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 the, the, the dynamic they set up is that there's a choice between them, the autocrats, or some vast instability, you know, the Muslim Brotherhood, terrorism, you know, the risk of uh, conflict with Israel, um, and, and they, they, you know, make it a binary choice, us or, um, or this kind of unseen danger, this other. Um, and, and you had a recent piece in the opinions uh, section um, by Elisa Massimino and Neil Hicks, you know, that detailed, okay, well, who are the people uh, behind the, these draconian measures in Egypt, which has tens of thousands of people uh, in prison uh, who should not be there, uh, often for political offenses, including one of the most prominent uh, human rights activists who's actually not in the country, so he's he was uh, sentenced in absentia. But the piece talked about someone who was, uh, again, one of the more prominent activists uh, for Egyptian human rights, sentenced to 15 years in prison for criticizing Sisi on Twitter. I mean, that's all he did. Um, and, and they, they sent him for 15 years. I mean, and you guys have published a lot on Egypt. I mean, has, do you have a sense that Egypt has kind of been forgotten? I mean, Sisi was looking over that orb with Trump and uh, King Salman of Saudi Arabia, as you mentioned. Um, why has Egypt kind of fallen off the radar screen? And, and frankly, what would you want to see a Biden administration do, given that Egypt is still one of the leading recipients of American foreign assistance, um, if Biden's elected? Yeah, I mean, I think... I think that the the Sisi regime, and I, I um, again, just thinking this all makes me flash back to conversations I used to have with Jamal Khashoggi, and he he used to be uh, Egypt was close to his heart, right? Um, and he wrote frequently about the you know so called Arab Spring and about how crushed he was. Um, and in many ways, crushed he was that Saudi Arabia and UAE played a huge role in suppressing that. 
Um, and I, you know, from my experience, like it has, we, we, we do what we could or, or still do everything we can to, to speak and write and advocate um, against this authoritarianism. Um, I mean, the numbers of, of not only people in jail, but I think what people need to understand is the tactics that CC, uh, uh, the Emiratis, um, Saudis use is like, they will go after your family. They, they will threaten and throw your family members in jail to try to get to you. And it causes immense strain on, on those who dare, dare to criticize, criticize the CC regime. And honestly, it's, it's one of the biggest, I think the, uh, Egypt is one of the biggest, um, blights, I think, on the U.S. record in terms of openly supporting um, supporting a dictator and undermining undermining what happened um, in 2013 in terms of a in terms of a democratic a democratic election. And I mean, I think that, you know, what I would like to see from a, a Biden, uh, I didn't want to say Biden regime. Administration. <laughs> I just, yeah, um, the administration, because, yeah, you know, we, we, we're not there yet in terms no, of no. actual regime, but, um, to be, to put like more than just words and rhetoric to support for human rights is to end weapons deals, is to, impose uh and, and i know there's huge debates over over sanctions and and their effectiveness but to impose um legitimate consequences for top individuals top members of the cc regime that engage in these in these abuses and like one thing um you know you spoke of president morsi he he passed away in in prison last year um and there was very little little kind of outcry remembrance yeah. i just remember thinking it was it was very muted this was the sitting and democratically elected president in passed away in jail uh, you know to be specific he was in prison um and many egyptian activists feel like he was he died of purposeful neglect um he had multiple health issues and so just this um real drive by the sisi regime to eliminate any forms of of dissent any forms of the muslim brotherhood uh has is ongoing um is ongoing you know mohammed sultan uh the egyptian american activist who um you know also has been targeted his family has been targeted and you know had to resort to trying to even sue <laughs> um to to alleviate this sort of pressure and basically the us government sided with the egyptian government um and and in that so it's just really uh it just rings so hollow and i honestly i wish that us journalists um when the trump administration not regime yeah administration uh you know makes these claims that we push back with these facts yeah uh i think we i think the press should be doing a much better job at being able to respond to this in real time yeah no i think uh you know muhammad sultan is someone we both know in common and his story is really chilling um both from when he was in prison and tortured in egypt and, and i actually have an episode of missing america the podcast i'm doing coming up where he tells that story that, that kind of culminates with the Egyptian government letting 
ISIS recruiters into his cell to try to recruit him. Um, they want the opposition to be radicalized. It, it's a justification for all those weapons that we sell them. Um, but now, of course, as you mentioned, he's, he's, his family's being rolled up in Egypt. He's suing his torturers, and the U.S. government is siding with the Egyptian regime. Trump has called Sisi my favorite dictator. Again, uh, the kind of counteracts the Tom Cotton talking point that uh, you know, Biden's the one who coddles dictators. I think one of the lessons, though, is that sometimes on the left, we you know, are very critical of the right-wing dictators. The Republicans very critical of Cuba and Venezuela, but America needs some consistency here. One country that we have agreed about largely, although Trump is silent about it because probably his relationship with Putin, uh, is Belarus and, and Lukashenko. So this is going to complete here our, our kind of tour of dictators. Um, the the <laughs> latest, the we, yeah, uh, uh, we, we, you know, we'll, we'll kind of gloss up against them later. But uh, um, you know, we've been following this on the show. Putin um, recently, uh, just a couple of days ago, called Lukashenko on his 66th birthday to pass on his warm wishes. So I'm glad. They could have that moment together. Um, they issued a, an andine statement about strengthening bilateral relations, but that can feel kind of ominous if, you know, the strengthening bilateral relations might be Russian intervention on Lukashenko's behalf. But the crowds have not uh, diminished uh, in Belarus. The people clearly are fed up. But the other thing I wanted to ask you about, Karen, is we've seen the detention of, of dozens of foreign journalists, um, including from outlets like the Associated Press. So clearly kind of a, a concerted strategy here by Lukashenko to, to try to keep foreign eyes and foreign journalists from reporting on what's going on there. What do you, what is that about? I mean, you've looked at these issues. Why does a Lukashenko focus on foreign journalists? Why should people care about it? And, and what is the value of what those journalists are there to do? Honestly, I mean, it's it seems uh, after Lukashenko got that, you know, vote of possible, you know, military support or, or police support for his, uh, you know, to help uh, back him up against these protesters that he was definitely emboldened. And, you know, I think in, in, in many ways to see, to see detentions and attacks on, on journalists period, on people period, obviously, obviously on people period, but on journalists and particularly foreign journalists is a big middle finger to the international community, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Basically, this is a, a, a president and also getting support from a president, um, Putin, who has his own record of uh, targeting journalists, assassinating, I mean, Alexander Navalny, you know, sitting in a, a poisoned in a German uh, hospital as we speak. We know that this is, that uh, Lukashenko is getting support from a regime that doesn't give a crap <laughs> about, yeah, yeah. about journalists, about dissenters that they, you know, ha will take you out, right? So I think that that's, yeah. that's how we should interpret um, not just the crap. They want the international community to see. Yeah, it's a show of like, force. we don't care. It's a, yeah, it's a show yeah, yeah. of force in a way. It's a show of, of impunity. Um, and it's a show, I mean, I, I, and ultimately it means that they are interested in blocking out what's happening there. Um, they're interested, in a way, it does kind of show that they care about their image, <laughs> I suppose. But it is, it is uh, uh, you know, in, in my years of, of covering um, 
journalists and press freedom. Um, I once was an analyst for Freedom House um, looking at these issues. It's very hard to put sort of the genie back in the bottle once a once a government decides that it's open season on journalists. Um, often it can follow up with harsh laws, repressive laws against journalists. Um, I would be on the lookout for, you know, how are international uh, journalist organizations going to respond if there if there's a ban or becomes uh, enforced as some sort of ban um, on on foreign journalists. I mean, things get scary once any government decides to turn the lights out on foreign coverage, decides to uh, block internet. Um, block social media, you know, I, I, I think right now we're talking about journalists, but this is just kind of the, the sort of escalations um, that you see. So I, it's troubling, um, but it's also a bit inspiring, perhaps, or not perhaps, definitely that, um, you know, millions of, of people in Belarus are still taking to the streets. Uh, but it's, it's worrying. Again, another reminder that, you know, my chosen profession um, for many around the world is is extremely dangerous yeah no it's i mean you you make the point about you know when the lights are out what do you not see i mean we don't we don't really see what's happening in in Xinjiang province in western china where a million uyghurs are in camps we we hear reports mainly from the good work that like human rights organizations do some investigative journalism but but not people there we don't really see what's happening in kashmir right now where modi's turned off the internet uh, intermittently and cracked down on journalists and Belarus feels like, you know, the, the people there get it, that if they lose this fight, they could end up in one of those blacked out places, you know, and, and that, that speaks to the stakes involved. So the theme for next couple stops here, Karen, or these are places you've lived, uh, um, very worldly, um, you know, life the last couple of years. One was uh, Beirut, uh, another place we've been following here. Maybe this is a potential sign of hope, or maybe it's just more the same. Um, but they have a new prime minister, Mustafa Adib, who was most recently the Lebanese ambassador to Germany. He was designated prime minister, which means he emerged from the complex power sharing agreements that have kind of governed Lebanese politics since the end of their civil war. Uh, the prime minister has to be a Sunni. The president has to be a Maronite Christian. The speaker of the parliament has to be a Shiite. Shiite. So there's you know, delicate balance here. And what this suggests is that Adib was able to secure the broad enough backing to, to take this job. You know, honestly, it's one of those jobs that, you know, not a lot of people would want to volunteer for, Prime Minister of Lebanon, because you're navigating between all kinds of different factions, uh, including sectarian factions, Hezbollah, the, obviously the Iranian-backed group that is incredibly powerful in Lebanon. Um, but uh, he's replacing the previous prime minister who had to resign after that massive blast in Beirut, um, and after kind of an economic collapse has been unfolding in the country uh, for some time. So things are not doing well in Lebanon, obviously. Um, and today, uh, President Macron of France visited. Fran- France has been a key international donor. And, and clearly the aim here is to see whether Lebanon can take certain steps to get international support, to stabilize its economy, to rebuild from the blast. So, Karen, I want to ask you, as someone who's lived in, in, in Beirut, what is on the plate of this new prime minister? You've got the blast, you've got COVID, you've got an economy that had been collapsing, you've got Macron, a key international visitor there in the country. What needs to happen next in Beirut, and, and why should that matter uh, to people? Why is Lebanon important? Yeah, absolutely. And just for clarification, I spent 
a good amount of time there last year just for for reporting for my book so but i don't want to claim that i i live there so yeah yeah so i'm just you know prefacing prefacing that but i mean just after you know not just uh being there uh for some time but also you know just just following um again lebanese politics again to bring certain things back to to the gulf and and to to saudi arabia um you know, uh, starting from, you know, even when just this, this sort of yo-yo turmoil when it's come to, to the government. I mean, even uh, Saad Hariri, the, the former, uh, prime minister who was kidnapped by MBS in basically in 2018, um, forced to resign and then stepped back in. Uh, then we saw the protests, uh, the massive, anti-government, um, anti-corruption protests in Beirut um, and across Lebanon last year, um, which then, you know, forced Hariri to resign again. Um, and while I was there, um, and, and first of all, I mean, I, I, Beirut is is an amazing city and the Lebanese people are, are amazing. But I think one thing that struck me while I was there that, you know, maybe ties to even just the the pain and the the agony that ordinary Lebanese people are feeling. I just remember being on the streets um, in Beirut, like near the Hamra district, and there was like trash piling up on a lot of the streets, and you could it just kind of permeated the air. Like I could smell kind of shisha and orange blossoms, and then it's like and then trash. Um, and just talking to people, they were like, "This is just a sign." Like the 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 government hasn't figured out how to, you know, the corrupt factions within the government haven't figured out how to make enough money to get the trash collected properly. Um, and it was literally spilling out, like, into the streets. And you could just get the sense that, like, people in Beirut were just so tired of yeah. the incompetence, yeah. of the corruption. Um, and, you know, as you mentioned, even going into, um, you know, before COVID, Lebanon was facing a massive economic downturn. Um, and I mean, Lebanon is, is, is so important, not just for, uh, its sort of geographical you know, proximity, yes, to, to Israel, um, to Syria, um, and all of that. And it's been at the forefront in many ways, um, of the, uh, not the refugee crisis, the Syrian refugee crisis, and and what that has meant for you know, for the politics and the geopolitics in the whole region, including Europe, honestly. Um, so it, it it matters immensely what happens what happens in in Lebanon, uh, and it's just just this. I mean, for, like to hear about the blast, um, which uh, Beirut is still trying to p literally pick up the pieces from. I think I read a, a story today that um, the price of like glass and concrete has skyrocketed. Like people are trying to rebuild their homes and they can't because there are shortages. And if there was ever a country that deserved this, this horrible blast from a few weeks ago, the least <laughs> it was Lebanon. And so, you know, what I've been hearing from Lebanese friends and, and journalists is really, um, you know, <laughs> Well, I, in many ways, I wish all this still was getting um, the blast and the aftermath was getting more international attention. But one thing that they do caution is they're skeptical of their government. Their government has, they feel that their governments have screwed them over um, and not uh, not invested uh, in, in their people. 
Um, and so I think that, you know, they're on, they're skeptical <laughs> and they have every right. Yeah. They have every right to be, um, given, yeah. given the situation and again, given, given COVID, but, um, you know, I hate to be cliche, but <laughs> they are such a resilient people, but they've been through so, 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 so much. And, um, to hear that, you know, some of my friends, even in Beirut saying that, the blast in the aftermath feels worse, even in some respects, than even those who had gone through the civil war, just because of this years of trying to pick themselves back up, trying to pick themselves yeah. back up. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I think that, um, you know, and it's no surprise that Macron <laughs> be the first, uh, be the first to, to kind of really ha offer a show um, on the ground of, of support. Um, although I saw a picture of him um, and he wasn't wearing a mask in Lebanon. So yeah, I think that would be important. <laughs> but you know, I think that the, one of the things you get questions about, right, is like why why should the U.S. provide assistance to places like this? I mean, w one way to think about Lebanon is is just how much the people there. A, a lot of this is not their fault, <laughs> and and so you know. Uh, you've got Iran uh, backing Hezbollah, um, and, and that's been a longstanding relationship. So you've got the foreign interference from Iran. You've got Saudi Arabia, as you as you point out, literally taking hostage you know, the former prime minister of the country, Hariri, uh, in, in Riyadh, wanting to suggest that they control him, that, that they want to, to control politics in Lebanon, not Iran. So you have this kind of proxy war between the Saudis and the Iranians. And then you've got refugees by the millions in the country, not their fault, you know, from, you know, from Syria, from from other conflicts in the Middle East. Um, so this is a, a place and a people that has had a lot of stuff happen to them that is not of their creation. And, and, and in that kind of circumstance, I think the international community, whatever that is anymore, um, does have an obligation here to kind of help fill the gap, you know. Yeah. And, and not only that, but like, I think one pe thing people don't, I mean, just in my, my time as a journalist and even living and reporting from my parents, uh, home country of Ghana to, I, uh, was a reporter in, in Curacao for a year. The Lebanese diaspora, um, and business communities around the world. I mean, there were questions about how this downturn was going to, uh, because there are a lot of uh, a lot of Lebanese abroad who also send um, money home as well, and so you know what happens in, in Lebanon also in many ways affects so many communities and and diasporas around the world. So yeah, I, I totally agree with you. It's just like to me, um, this is such an argument for supporting people and for a people first policy, no matter you know what the uh, what America decides to do, a people first policy, and not so much you know. The government, you know what I mean, like um, yeah, not the geopolitical the, the geopolitical intrigue. Yeah, is what captures everybody's attention, not these actual people who live the actual here. people and, who live there yeah. and who are caught, like in many ways. And and I one thing, you know, when this is all over, Beirut is is a place I, I really want to go back to. Um, but if there is ever a people whose government who who I wish people who who've never been to Lebanon can understand how, you know, yeah, Christians live amongst, uh, Lebanese Christians live amongst Muslims, live amongst, it's such a, a cosmopolitan um, place and city in many ways. And even in the government, this trying, it's a, it's a country that tries to balance so much. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> so yeah. So many yeah. different interests, so many different backgrounds, religions, 
Um, but then it also means that balancing also means that there's proxy conflict. And it's just, yes, the Lebanese people do not deserve. Yeah, no, it's, uh, they deserve a break. Uh, they're, they're very high on the list of people around the world that need a break. Another place that you spent some time uh, working on your book is Germany. Um, I, I have to say, I was a little surprised to read the headline in the New York Times, quote, far-right Germans try to storm Reichstag as virus, virus protests escalate. Um, not a headline you want to read. Uh, the better news, obviously, is that they, they failed to storm the Reichstag this time. Um, and in fact, actually, you know, on the surface, a lot is going well in Germany. Uh, Chancellor Merkel's government has handled the virus, you know, very well among the world's democracies. Um, you know, the the schools are reopening. They've been able to kind of keep the uh, economy afloat, keep the deaths low. Uh, and yet at the same time, you have this kind of bizarre protest. Uh, people may have seen on TV, you know, tens of thousands of protesters in Berlin, um, this kind of weird mix of, you know, people, uh, conspiracy theorists, uh, kind of anti-capitalist people who don't want to wear masks. Uh, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. was there because of his kind of anti-vax ideology. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was, it was a good scene there. Um, kind of Star Wars bar situation. <laughs> um, it, but, you know, uh, to, to, to give credit to Germany, everybody spoke up. You know, so the head of the Green Party uh, condemned this. Uh, Nazis with imperial flags tried to storm the Bundeshag, recalls the darkest period in our history, he said. Uh, the president of Germany called it an unbearable attack on the heart of our democracy. The head of Merkel's party said it's intolerable for the right flag to, to fly at the parliament. So the good news is, you know, there, there are antibodies against this kind of thing in Germany. But, but w how do you explain a country that seems to have it together um, and yet has still this undercurrent of kind of conspiracy theory that could explode in like a demonstration like this that we saw? Yeah, it's uh, not to... Not to use like virus puns, but here we are. <laughs> um, I mean, yeah, the masks yeah, are yeah. a screen, you know, it seems for for many other things, many other grievances, uh, you know, and it's um, even even last year when I was in in Berlin um, and in Germany, there was many more many more stories about far right, the far right influence basically creeping up in all aspects of politics and in life. I was um, in, in a part of Berlin and there weren't like too far f from us. Uh, there were, uh, you know, yeah, kind of like small neo-Nazi demonstrations. Of course there were counter protests and I think it's, it's important to also highlight that there are plenty of, of Germans and Berliners who uh, see this creep, this, uh, kind of more far-right, neo-Nazi, xenophobic, racist creep and are trying to do what they can against it. But it was definitely in the air uh, last year when I was there and, and stories uh, about how this infiltration um, was happening even through the police forces and the military. And I think finally this year, um, well, after a, a long time, the German government kind of kept a lid on on these reports, tried to, uh, you know, present a, a, a rosier picture of what was happening. But yeah, I mean, I think it's, you know, it's part of the same far right um, creep that we've been seeing around the world. Um, and it's just, it's quite, uh, it's telling that in many ways, the originator of 
Nazism hasn't defeated it over yeah. all over over all yeah. this time. Yeah. And I think you know, even while I was while I was there, there was a you would hear, not he, but uh, I was learning about that there is a sentiment of people who have long felt that Germany has had to apologize for far too long for what happened um, during the Holocaust. That there are even, you know, people who still believe that um, Germany has already paid enough of a price and and who secretly harbor a lot of those, those ideologies. Um, and so in many ways for these mass, um, these anti-mass protests to come out as a, as a way for people to proudly fly their far right flag, um, for people to, in many ways, air out their grievances, which I think in the New York Times article uh, or opinion piece makes, you know, the point that this is a screen for people to express grievance. Um, and so the question is grievance yeah. about what, uh, about, you know, a country that, again, largely has weathered many of Europe's economic crises well. And there's plenty of, you know, uh, plenty to say about um, about that and plenty to say about how they handled the coronavirus well. The, the mass and the measures worked. I wish Germans could come to Texas and see what it looks like yeah. when this virus yeah, is out of control. Yeah. Um, but you know, it's, it's, it speaks to something else and it speaks to, it speaks to conspiracy theories. It speaks to a, a broader fight about disinformation, fake news, misinformation. Um, and it's really just, uh, yeah, I mean, obviously as a black woman to hear that mass are bringing Germans back to slavery, I just, you know the side eye for me, the eye roll of the century. Um, but it's it's something to watch. Um, and it's something to watch as the world is grappling with this virus without a vaccine um, and how this virus is going to become a certain type of, of avatar in a way, a shield, a vehicle for people to express and agitate against other norms, honestly, other against experts, against facts. And to see this happen in yeah. Germany, um, I mean, we've obviously had some of these protests here, but uh, so much for being the leader of the free world. Yeah, well, they're not, as you said, it shows that nobody's immune to it, right? And, and you have to stand up to this everywhere. And it shows that, you know, history never really goes away. Um, you know, that 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 may be the, the slightly awkward transition to another country that's dealt with a, a genocide, Rwanda, um, that has been seen as, like Germany, a success story in the sense that the economy has recovered, uh, kind of a development darling of Africa um, under President Paul Kagame, um, the Tutsi who helped end the genocide and has governed the country ever since. People may have seen a strange uh, series of headlines in recent days that the hero of the movie Hotel Rwanda, uh, a man named uh, Paul Rusesa Bajina. Um, I hope I got that right. Um, but but I remember well reading the book about this and, and watching this movie. Don Cheadle played Paul, who was a Hutu, who had a hotel that uh, sheltered uh, people from the genocide uh, in the capital of Kigali who were fleeing the violence. Um, he subsequently moved uh, out of the country, became an opponent of Kagame, and uh, was recently charged with terrorism by the government of Rwanda. 
Um, people may have been looking at this and thinking of Don Cheadle, <laughs> thinking about this inspiring story of a man sheltering people. What happened here, uh, Karen? You want to 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 enlighten our our listeners about why even a place like Rwanda that seemed like it had climbed out of its past uh, is is not fully out of it. Uh, I mean, you know, to see and and one thing about 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 Rwanda and particularly Hotel Rwanda and honestly, you know, just keeping in mind that you know Hotel Rwanda for a lot of Americans who saw the movie really helped to. Um, bring awareness to what happened in 1994 with, yeah. with the genocide um, and the Hutus and Tutsis. And, um, and honestly, uh, the irony in many ways is that, you know, Paul Kagame, who was um, in the military during that time and, and then became president after the, after the genocide, in many ways uh, uses the, the horrendousness of um the slaughter that happened to yeah. justify policies that put dissenters in jail that uh chill journalists um that have sent you know, uh opponents fleeing into exile um and so the idea that the the man behind uh the story that helped raise the profile of Rwanda and what happened during that time is now in jail again to our earlier, you know, fun, yeah. fun uh, conversation, straight up impunity. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and, and, and it's just, I mean, this, this happened what, uh, two days ago. So, you know, it's, it's a case to watch. And I think it's a case to, for, for journalists and, and, uh, activists and people to pressure on. Um, but in my, you know, time at, at the post, um, I've written on Rwanda a lot and written about how Kagame is such a, is such a darling. Like he enjoys, you know, coming to, to the States and speaking at places like Harvard and at the UN. And I'll often hear people defend him, um, to me saying, well, but he keeps the country from sliding back into war. Um, and again, it's back to this. And, and this is where I, I, I think that a lot of like the authoritarian playbook is pretty, this is like a standard one. It's like a global one. I mean, it's, it's back to the same idea that without me as these people's dear leader, these people are not capable of living together peacefully. So you need me, dear West. You need me, America, as Kagame to hold it together to keep these people from killing each other and to keep Kagame clean. Cause that's what everybody tells me. They're like, yeah, but Kagame has removed so plastic funny. bags yeah, yeah. from the streets. Like he's an enlightened African basically. And I find that quite racist in some ways. And I find it also uh, shameful that again, other reasons to enable dictators. Yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, there were, Plenty of reports of him, you know, targeting dissidents outside of Rwanda um, during the Obama years. Even at the same time that, you know, the the metrics that people look at for these African countries that are recipients of foreign aid, in terms of health and education, or the performance of the the civil service would be good. But I, I mean, I think the the problem. You know, Obama used to speak about this, uh, and 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 he did this at the African Union to a lot of attention in Africa. That you know, there are these guys like Kagame who 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 in their own mind, whether it's just for pure pursuit of power or whether they actually believe it, they think that they're indispensable. And the idea is if you're actually building a, a democracy, that should be able to, to be handed off to somebody else. You know, um, uh, 
I, I, you know, the other thing that, that jumped out at me when I saw the kind of last couple items we had teed up was, uh, you know, Hotel Rwanda kind of plays into the Western view of Africa. What's the movie that people saw about Africa? Oh, it's the movie where they're slaughtering each other with machetes and and the guy, you know, who ho- runs the hotel that, that the white people stay at when they visit, you know, does this heroic thing. And and it, it was a good and well-meaning movie. I don't want to, to speak badly of the movie, but... But I think it, it it speaks also why to to our next topic, Black Panther resonated so much um, because it was a different presentation of Africa than, say, you know, Hotel Rwanda. Um, and you know, as as much as this is a sad topic because of the tragic loss of Chadwick Boseman, I, I also think it's kind of a hopeful topic because, you know, I I I, I remember traveling with President Obama to Johannesburg, South Africa, in 2018, and. Ryan Coogler came with us, the director of Black Panther and writer. And, you know, he walked out to speak to these hundreds of young African leaders. And they went absolutely berserk. I mean, in a way that, I mean, I'm used to people freaking out when they see Barack Obama or Michelle Obama. But I'd never seen anything like this. On their feet, yelling, everybody was doing Wakanda forever. And you, you got the sense that all these kids, all these young people, saw themselves differently because of Black Panther. Um, and, and, and this is just South Africa. And I was, I'm trying to think about when, when Chadwick Boseman died, the legacy of like, how do young people, not just Black Americans, but young Africans see themselves differently because of not just that film, but all of his work, you know, embodying all these heroes. Um, I know you've written a piece about this for the, that'll air the same day that the podcast comes out. I mean, what, what do you think the legacy is of, of Black Panther? And how would you describe not just the the impact on Black Americans, but on the African continent. Mm-hmm. Um, gosh, that anecdote about uh, Obama and Ryan Coogler like even gives me chills right now. The only thing I can think of is like, have you seen that gift yeah. with Obama where he's sitting in the chair and he's throwing his hands up? Like, wait, what? He's yeah. like, what? What about me? What about me? I'm sure that was. I, I have in my phone a, a great <laughs> picture though of of Obama and Coogler each doing Wakanda oh, Forever. Wow. Someday I'll post it on on some social media platform and try to break the internet because it's very it's very. <laughs> Now's cool. the time, man! Like, yeah, 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 like yeah, ride ride the BP wave right now. Yeah, I mean, look, I was stunned when I heard about Chadwick Boseman's death um, over the weekend, um, and I didn't. I don't know. I'm not normally one to really. I don't know. I'm not normally one to be super into celebrities like that but this hit hard and i think maybe for many 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 reasons he was young nobody knew he was sick with colon cancer um and i i just didn't know what to say for uh for a few days um and so like i was reading over the coverage and i saw that um uh bozeman was very insistent from the beginning that t'challa his character speaks in uh, uh, South African language in Tosa, and that he fought Marvel. Marvel was pretty keen on having the actors speak in a British accent, and they felt that speaking in African accents was, quote, too much. Um, And to read that, you know, Kugler um, said in a statement a few days ago that it was Bozeman's um, speaking his lines in 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 Tosa, and I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing it, but just speaking in a commitment to to the literally African voice, like the African accented 
voice and language and that that's what convinced him to sign on to direct Black Panther. And then the yeah. rest is literally history. I mean, one of literally, the yeah. biggest superhero movies of all time, um, the highest grossing uh, movie for a black actor. But I don't want to just say it's important because it made a lot of money. No, but I, I think it's just so... I mean, he was... <laughs> Bozeman, we already knew he was a, a fighter. Like, But the idea that he was literally fighting colonialism in a way, like fighting against the idea that like the British accent is the accent for Africans to sound what dignified to sound yeah, yeah. to sound authoritative to sound universal quote unquote that that wouldn't be too much no that undermines the whole premise of what Wakanda is supposed to represent which is a country that has never been touched by an outside subjugator that has never been touched by a colonizer and so um Bozeman said that that was a deal breaker for him and on hindsight I'm glad and you know in my um in my discussions with African uh, journalists um, who watched the film, they loved it. At the same time, like, you know, you hear the accent and it's like, well, okay, there's a South African accent here. There's a kind of a Ugandan yeah, accent yeah, here. I'm yeah, like, yeah, I kind of yeah. hear Nigerian yeah. a little bit. There. So it's kind of like this hodgepodge. And, and as uh, Larry Madoa from the BBC said, it's like, it's a bit of a mess. But you know what? Yeah. <laughs> I think that the it, it shows the importance of centering Africanness. And I say Africanness because... They weren't trying to show Africa. It's it's very much a an African American in some ways vision yeah. of of Africa of this utopia an African utopia. Yeah. Let's say lost that. utopia. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Or what could have been, what could yeah. be, or could have been. But that's important that you center literally our 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 words, our our, our accents, our voices. And so for me, you know, as a as a first generation American here, seeing now that like Black Panther has kind of been that uh, a proof case that you can center blackness, you can center black people, you can center Africa, Africa, an approximation to Africa, um, and have it resonate. And that's exactly what it did. And it resonated as a very universal story in many ways. Again, not to, I mean, to tie everything to Saudi Arabia, that was the first movie that screened in Saudi Arabia when they uh, opened cinemas again. Um, it grossed over $1 billion worldwide. And so it resonated with something human in, in all of us. And so it's, it's just, it's really important, I think, for, you know, I think if you speak to Africans, you'll, you'll also hear that there are African stories, there are African creators and filmmakers, and they deserve to, yeah. to also be given the, 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 resources and the support to to make their stories as well but it just really showed on a global level that we can be ourselves and that's enough and that's important yeah well hopefully that the legacy is both what all the young people who saw that movie do in their lives and and like you say that there's more of a spotlight on on african films too not just uh you know depictions of africa i wanted to end on one Light or happy note here uh, on August 21st, Mi Jiang, the national zoo's only female giant panda in Washington, gave birth to what is considered a miracle cub. Mi Jiang is older than the typical panda mother, according to the Washington Post, uh, your uh, parent employer, Karen. She had less than a 1% chance of having another cub. And this is particularly exciting for panda lovers in DC because the last one, Bebe, was sent back to China, another sign of Chinese rising influence. 
uh, in November of 2019 because China owns and leases all the giant patents in U.S. zoos. Um, but we're happy about this. We wanted to celebrate it in a week without a lot of good news. Um, it, it's been a week and a half, so we think that the the, the panda is going to make it here. Karen, when you get up to D.C., are you going to see this panda? Do you care? How do you feel about the baby panda? <laughs> I remember when I first joined the post, um, my colleagues and I, we had like a, a huge panda discussion. And like there are apparently some people on this earth who are anti-panda. I don't. I yeah. do not. It's like anti-vaxxers, <laughs> right? It's, uh, yeah. Well, I mean, I I, I think they are cute and cuddly. I know they're, they're not the smartest or the brightest That's or fine. the hardest working creatures. <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> on this planet. But... I am I am all for anybody who checks my Twitter feed. Like right now, I'm obsessed with like watching hummingbirds. Um, yeah, I, I am I all one for any yard. sort yeah. of yeah. I'm all for any sort of joy during this pandemic. And yeah, I just I want to see. I do want to see the pandas. I even though. Yeah, I do. Let's do I'm it. I'm a panda supporter. Well, how about, uh, you know, when we both can get to D.C., uh, we'll go check out the panda. Uh, yeah, I'm a panda centrist. I acknowledge the <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But I also feel like, you know, we, we can't just, I'm, I'm not a panda extremist. Like, I, you know, either way, like, they're, they're okay. They've got their flaws, but I, I can, I can appreciate, appreciate how cute they are. I can appreciate an animal just wants to hang out, sleep, and eat bamboo leaves all day. That's and what maybe, I want to do. That's what I want to do. That's about where I'm at in month seven of lockdown. And, and I think, uh, maybe this is an <laughs> omen that 2021 will be better than 2020. Um, I, I will take that. <laughs> <laughs> I think we'll all be pandas. Like that's really, honestly, I think actually now that I think about it, I think that it's just an omen that really, honestly, that's the best we can hope for is just to be a panda, just roll around, eat bamboo, kind of, you know, pandas kind of walk around like they're a little drunk all the time, you know, so yeah, it's like, yeah. you know, we're all like try to avoid the conflict between the American and Chinese governments. Yeah, yeah. you know, and we're all like sleep deprived and kind of, you know stumbling all over ourselves through this like new reality so maybe the panda is not such a bad mascot for all of us to have <laughs> no let's take it i'll take it um well look we thanks so much for for helping us out this week uh check out uh karen atia's new book uh available for peter check out her writing including this piece on black panther that is popping today as you're hearing this and please please check out global opinions there's some amazing voices there uh, Rana Ayub, who you've heard on this podcast, uh, Rakai Diallo, who you're, you've heard on this podcast, Jason Rezaian, a good friend of ours who you've also heard in this podcast. So we seem to have similar taste, Karen, including in pandas and movies. So I hope you come back and hope we can keep in touch. We'll do. We'll do. As long as we make it through this year. <laughs> yeah, yeah, just make it through 2020 and then we'll we see. I, I'm happy. I'm happy to be back. Thank you so much for having me on. This was a lot of fun. Thanks. It was awesome. Thanks, Karen. Posse the World is a crooked media production. The executive producer is Michael Martinez. Our associate producer is Jordan Waller. Pod Save the World is mixed and edited by Chris Basil. Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thanks to our amazing digital team, Elijah Cohn, Narmel Konian, and Milo Kim, who film and share our episodes, videos every week. 